HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRM podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Explore Ithaca's waterfalls, orchards, and craft beverage scene. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host, Krishnan Dure, and this episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our summer 2022 issue, now available online, explores the themes of borders and boundaries, featuring articles on migrant experiences, food imaginaries, and practices of provisioning through food rearing and preservation. So join us over the next couple of weeks as we talk with authors and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. So our guest this week uh, is uh, Indira Arumugam, uh, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the National University of Singapore. Her work is in Tamil Nadu and on the Tamil diaspora in Singapore. Her research interests include popular politics, ritual practices, kinship, uh, play, and pleasure. So thank you for joining us and welcome to the show, Indira. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, That's lovely. I I really enjoyed uh, reading your piece. So let's kind of jump right in. So let me begin by reading the first lines from your piece. Uh, You write, you always know when family is visiting uh, from overseas Outside their houses, threaded through twine and hung on fences and poles, will be chunks of goat meat and fish drying in the sun. So ventured my mother's sister, Chinappa, who lives in Vaduvur, a village in central Tamil Nadu. End quote. Uh, so Indira, uh, what is she talking about? Uh, and second, always feel free to correct uh, my uh, not-so-Tamil pronunciation so that the, our audience get a sense how to say these words because I don't think I'll be able to get it exactly correctly. Uh, so these are foodstuffs that are almost impossible to find elsewhere. 
they are so rooted in the village and the time it takes to make them and the tremendous um, effort and, and the sunlight and all of that, right? So it's totally associated with the village. And so people who have migrated from the village to elsewhere, like in Singapore, for example, uh, we always miss this food. So the first thing my, when we call to tell we are coming to the village, that's what they do. They buy the goat meat or they buy the dried fish and then uh, start the preservation efforts, right? So you always know when there are visitors from Singapore or Malaysia or whatever, because these are the things they are going to take back with them, back to Singapore or Malaysia so that they can cook curries with this and remind themselves of the taste of the village. So what's the temperature like in the summer that we're talking about? Uh, it can be from like 40 degrees to, to Celsius. That's how I yeah. know. Uh, 40 yeah, yeah. Degrees that's about, yeah, f- yeah, for our American <clears throat> listeners, that's about 110 degrees Fahrenheit, 40, 45. Yeah, good. And, and so, uh, um, so what kinds of things are being sun-dried? You say dhotis, tarpaulins, spices, grains, pulses. And one of the things you list is um, sun-dried uh, rice crackers, uh, yeah. Salty dried vegetables, uh, and most yeah. intriguing for me, fried yogurt cured chilies. What are they? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, so these uh, dried provisions were before the days of refrigeration, used to preserve like gluts from the garden, or if you had a sacrifice or a worship, right? And you had extra meat and you, you didn't have a freezer or you didn't have a refrigerator. So you would preserve it by sun drying, salting and sun drying. So these are ways of preserving food to last for a long time through into the misty sort of um, uh, winters and the rainy monsoons, right? And so you lay tarpaulins and dotis on the ground or over a, a, a bedstead. And then because it, it's so hot in the in the afternoons, uh, uh, in summer, you just lay out, you know, vegetables that you had boiled, brinjols or um um, uh, many others, you know, this is when you make pickles, this is when you make all of these uh, food stuffs that will last um, throughout <clears throat> for a very long time without refrigeration, right? And and so um, these include vegetables, and many of us are very familiar with these vegetables. So you know, cu- uh, you as I said, you get brinjols, um, you know, uh, okra, all of that, um, and you make it into a curry with when fresh vegetables are not available. Um, but um, and you have things like condiments, pickles. Then you have things like crackers that are like. Um, savory stuff that you have with your meals to to provide texture, like crunchiness and, and things like that. Um, and of course, meat and fish, right? That's uh, part of it as well. So these yogurt cured chilies are chilies that are dipped in yogurt and then laid out in the sun to dry. And so they take on, the chilies turn from red to a sort of beigeish brownish color. And then you store it, once they're fully dried, you store it um, in jars and everything. And whenever you want and you have nothing at home to accompany your dal or your curd rice or whatever, you fry some of these chilies and they're salty and tart and spicy at the same time. And they add as a great uh, textural as well as taste counterpoint to some really bland or very simple kind of meals. Okay, so you write, uh, although meat, meat and fish, and I'm quoting here, uh, are prominent in Tamil foodways, uh, they are not centered in the popular imagination of Tamil food yeah. and tend to receive scant scholarly attention compared to vegetarian pr- uh, provisions, end quote. Uh, why do you think so? Well, the thing is that um, almost seven, 80% to 90% of Tamil Nadu is non-vegetarian. So people eat meat and fish. 
Um, and it's only constrained by the fact that they can't afford meat and fish. It's not that they don't want to eat it. They can't afford it. right? But a lot of the literature that comes out or, or food that is famous about Tamil Nadu is idlis and doses and sambars and all of these cuisines, which are great, tasty, but they are such a small part of what the rich rich mixture and rich diversity that is uh, food in Tamil Nadu, right? And of course, it uh, differs regionally ag- across the co- along the coastlines. There's much more fish available. Um, and, you know, in, in Chetinad, for example, which is more sort of uh, desert or, or less uh, vegetation there, meat is a very prominent game, in fact, is a very important part of the diet there. So I think in the scholarship, it has largely uh, been based on um, caste notions of vegetarianism and norms of vegetarianism. And a lot of the scholarship comes out of Sanskritic or Brahminical kind of uh, examples. And, and these are things that idlis, dosas, filter coffee, these are things that Chennai is associated with, for example, the capital city of Tamil Nadu. But Chennai has a tremendously long coastline. It's got the second longest beach in the world after Brazil. And so obviously fish is a very, very prominent part of the diet, but yet it doesn't get talked about as much. So it's largely due to the kinds of people we talk to, the kinds of uh, information uh, that we have access to as scholars and, and the interlocutors who are speaking with us and who are, feel con- comfortable in English or comfortable in the academic language to speak to us. So it's const- the sort of diversity is constrained by access in this way. Excellent. So uh, let's let's uh, do a little bit of place setting here, as and you already started very well. So Vadavur is your native village in Tamil Nadu, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, so my question is uh, two related questions. Uh, mm-hmm. Where do you, do you live now, and how often do you get to go to your native village? Uh, and by the way, uh, specifically, uh, how did you deal with it during the COVID uh, pandemic, which is still yeah. continuing? Yeah. So Vadavur is in central Tamil Nadu. So uh, people might know it by, for example, this is the Chola Empire and Tanjaur, which is considered to be the sort of granary of South India. So it's very green. It's, rice cultivation is the is the big deal. It's near the Kaveri River. And so it's, it's a part of the Delta area. And therefore, it's very rich agriculturally. Um, and also culturally, because it used to be a very rich uh, um, place. It's a foundation for lots of empires and lots of temples, lots of cultural activities there as well. Um, and so my family grew up, <clears throat> My um, both sides of my family are from this village and my paternal grandfather migrated and so uh, to Singapore. So now I live in Singapore um, and we didn't used to be able to visit Vadavur as often as we like. So in the first time I visited uh, Vadavur after leaving it as a toddler was when I was nearly 20 years old because there was no cheap wow. flights, there was no... There was no, I mean, we had letters and even phone calls were infrequent, right? And so it's only after the advent of cheap flights that we could go back regularly. Um, and it's not that far away. It's, you know, it's actually easier to come to Singapore from Vadavur than it is used to be able to go from Vadavur to the capital city of Tamil Nadu, which is Chennai, right? So there used to be a lot of crisscrossing um, and, and even like places in Malaysia like Penang and you know, all considered part of Tamil space because it was so easy. It just took a few days on the ship. Right um, before the advent of planes, um, and so during COVID, I haven't been able to go there at all. So I haven't, I have not uh, ventured uh, to Vadavur at all. Um, any sort of research that I've been doing is largely based on what the fieldwork that I had done before as part of my doctoral research, and as well as um, sort of interviews over phones um, and memories from what my mother used to tell me, and in so 
part of my own biography. And, and that, so I haven't been able to travel. So, uh, in fact, you mentioned something and maybe it's, uh, um, it would be useful for our audience who may not know the history of the Bay of Bengal literal. When you said this is kind of a Tamil space, could you elaborate a little more in terms of a little more depth in terms of history as to how is it that the Bay of Bengal literal is, how did it become a Tamil space? Yeah. So nowadays, the Tamil diaspora that is prominent in the academic as well as the popular space is the Sri Lankan Tamil one. So after the war, these refugees um, migrated to Europe and and, um, uh, and America and you get to hear a lot about that. But actually, the uh, Tamils who went to Southeast Asia is a much older diaspora, right? And even before, uh, I mean, large most of these connections were forged during colonial the colonial period when the British were... Uh, uh, were in power both in India as well as in Southeast Asia, including Singapore and Malaysia, right? So the connections and the transport and all of that was forged by the British, right? And um, at the time when most Tamils migrated to Singapore and Malaysia, there was a great big famine <clears throat> um, in uh, South India. Um, and so, you know, people were suffering and there was a tremendous labor shortage in Southeast Asia. And so this is one of the reasons the British encouraged Tamil migration to Southeast Asia, plus there's also a racist component to it, a racial component to it, where they thought that Tamil labor was more docile, was used to the um, uh, the heat and the humidity and would be able to work much more efficiently. So my grandfather, in fact, my paternal grandfather, went during British times and there was free shipping from the coastal town of Nagapattinam to Singapore. And so he snuck aboard the ship um, and, and uh, ran away to Singapore. He ran away from debt slavery, actually. Um, and so he ran away to, uh, to Singapore. And that's where the paternal side of my family is all in Singapore and the, and the maternal side of my family is all in Badur. I see. And, and uh, also, uh, and this is, you, you highlighted uh, the migration and the diaspora uh, during colonial times. And uh, uh, Southeast Asia was in one of the largest producers of, for instance, rice and rubber plantations, mm -hmm. uh, became an important uh, uh, part of the global commodity world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also we have almost over a millennia, uh, the uh, migration of people with different kinds of names, but who are often Tamils, uh, sometimes misnamed, by the way, as Kellings, right? Yes, uh, Chulias yes. and various kinds yeah. of Tamil, Muslims yeah. and Hindus, uh, etc. So this is, it's a long uh, process of diaspora making. Now coming yes. back uh, to the provisions we are, we, are, we are talking about, you write that until the 1990s, uh, uh, when access to refrigeration was limited, these types of provisions that you talk about in this piece, uh, sun-dried uh, uh, chilies, sun-dried vegetables, sun-dried meats and fish were absolute uh, necessities. So I have an anecdote I'll tell you uh, and then uh, a question. Mm -hmm. So first the anecdote. Uh, uh, I texted my brother uh, who lives in Delhi. Um, uh, we, we come from Odisha, uh, which is a little further north uh, of Tamil Nadu on the uh, Indian Peninsula. Uh, but we migrated uh, to various cities and he now lives in Delhi. And I wrote to him, I said, Babul, do you remember which year we got the first refrigerator in our household? And within a few seconds, uh, he texted back to me saying, 1976, April 5th. Okay, I said, what? <laughs> you remember <laughs> that exact date? Uh, and he, he said, yes, because you see, I remember telling mom, uh, does, does this mean we are getting a little rich now? Uh, 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> and so he remembers stuff uh, like this uh, because uh, the refrigerator was the first consumer durable uh, we acquired as a lower middle class family. We did not have a telephone. We did not have a car. So we got the refrigerator, but our diet changed minimally at that point, point of time. Uh, now, now the question. So did you see or do you see that the habits and skills and taste for the sun-dried uh, provisions that you talk about change in rural Tamil Nadu with refrigeration? Um, well, the refrigerator, I think, is looked, on, looked upon as a device to extend the sort of uh, viability of, of things rather than, um, and I think the taste that a frozen food or, or refrigerated food is still considered quite suspicious. You know, people still buy fresh fish every day and they buy the fish alive. Uh, and kill it themselves because they, otherwise they think the fish doesn't taste good. And frozen fish is still cons, um, cons, treated very, very suspiciously. They would never want to um, um, use it unless they had uh, 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 no choice at all. And, and so sun-dried provisions still continue to be uh, the main way in which food is preserved. I don't think they think of the refrigerator or the freezer as a preserving agent at all. Um, um, so, you know, so uh, the dosa batter, which would last for maybe a week, can be extended and be less sour for a few more days. It'll be less fermented when you put it in the fridge. That's about it, right? It's a storehouse for yogurt and for um, dosa batter and some vegetables, but that's about it. Meat is never put into the freezer or the fridge because they, they still have it fresh and they buy it from the butcher and the fishmonger fresh every day. So sun-dried fish and meat is considered much more healthy, much more tasty than frozen or refrigerated meat and fish. Yeah, yeah, that's a very beautiful point because I think my father still continued to do uh, uh, like almost groceries twice a day. Uh, so almost no f uh, fish, uh, f uh, vegetables uh, were stored in the refrigerator. The refrigerator became, in fact, a lot more site for cold water, chilled water. That's the yeah. first time we started having some of it. Uh, though there was always, a, in, in, in at least the uh, Indic Ayurvedic sense, there's always a panic about chilled yes. water, almost yeah. the opposite of uh, the American uh, structure of it. And you're absolutely right. It was almost used to extend things rather than store things and take fresh vegetables out and cooking about it. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, let's uh, maybe one more question before we take a break yeah. uh, uh, is kind of this. Could you describe a bit of the flavors of these sun-dried ingredients that is quite different from what I consider the kind of the cold, sweet architecture of tastes after refrigeration? Yeah. Um, so vegetables and sun-dried fish um, and meat as well, I think they change uh, in two ways when they're preserved uh, um, under sunlight, right? So first, texturally, they become a lot more chewy. In fact, uh, they become concentrated and a bit meatier in, in some ways, right? And, and so chewiness is not... I mean, I, I know Americans appreciate crispness the most, right? But chewiness is quite an appreciated texture, um, especially for meat, um, uh, for Tamils in, in the village as well. 
Um, and so even the vegetables become quite rubbery and they have to be de- you know, rehydrated and then cooked in the uh, curry later on. Um, so texturally, they change tremendously. And, and taste-wise, they again become much more concentrated, right? And, and salt is added when, when they are uh, preserved. So they taste almost more of themselves than otherwise. And um, they also... Um, become uh because you know some, uh, for the meat for example some uh herbs and and some uh spices are added so you know there's a tartness to it there's a spiciness to it um and and the textural counterpoint as well um and then uh for the fish especially there's um uh, several herbs that are found in the village which are added into the fish to to make them last longer but also adds a sort of slight bitterness to it as well so there's a sort of uh, complexity of taste that is there in these sorts of sunrise provisions that i think the fresh ones don't even provide right there's a like a medicinal herbal note as well as a chewy texture that I guess you kind of it's a it's a sort of uh, not a texture or taste that everyone appreciates but so people certainly in the village they do and it's a counterpoint to bland bland meals like a sambar or a plain yogurt or curd or dal right and so this sort of counterpoints of texture to a sort of smooth dal uh, sort of bland dal um, you know uh, it, it's a very good accompaniment and a textural and taste counterpoint to these and adds a complexity to the meal. That's, that's lovely. Um, uh, we're going to take a short break uh, and we'll be uh, back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. The area is well-known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There is something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. The second season of Hardcore is out now. You can learn all about apples and fermentation and dive into how cider makers and their communities are working to create an equitable industry and one that is resilient to climate change. Listen to Hardcore on your favorite podcast app. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. Thanks to HRN, I ventured into the world of cooking with sumac, and I have not looked back since. I was listening to A Taste of the Past with my mom, and there was an episode about the history of American food. It inspired me to make it the subject of my final social studies project, and I ended up getting an A. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. And we are back. Uh, this is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Krishnandu Ray talking with Indira Arumugam uh, about her new article, Preserving Flesh 
and spanning families, uh, now available in issue 22.2 of Gastronomica, uh, the Journal of uh, Food Studies. Uh, welcome back, Indira. Thank you. And you were, you were talking uh, before the break, you were talking about the taste uh, and the texture uh, and the unique flavors uh, that emerge from these uh, sun-dried uh, uh, comestibles. And uh, in, in your article, uh, your, uh, I think it's your maternal aunt, Chinappa, mm. uh, who complains, in fact, about your modest appetites. Uh, uh, wh- why is she complaining about your modest appetites when you go to your village? And what is the context? Could you explain it to our audience? Uh, she's used to people who come from Malaysia or Singapore and um, stay with their relatives in the village and people buy like five kilograms of meat and 10 kilograms of fish and dry the whole thing and send them off with these gifts. Right. And and so she's very surprised that we you know just want one kilogram or two kilogram. Right. So it's a prestige issue. First of all, she wants to show off that, look, my relatives, we, are, we can afford all of this meat and fish and we're buying it and we're gifting it to them and all that. So it's a it's a prestige issue. But I think more importantly, it's a generosity issue. She wants to shower us. I mean, she wants to show her love and she wants to shower us with uh, all the best that she can offer. And these are the things that we love. This is the things that we want from the village. And she wants to give it give as much of them as possible to us. But we are always like, no, no, we only want a little bit. We don't want too much. And all that. So that's why she's frustrated because we are frustrating her generous impetus and, and, <laughs> and like frustrating how much love she wants to shower on us. And we are like putting a limit on it. Oh, we only want, we have luggage restrictions and we only want this and we only want that. So that's what's frustrating to her. So in some ways, obstacles to gift giving because gift yes. is an important part of solidifying social relationships. Yes. Hey, uh, the, getting back to the meat a bit, uh, you say, I think reference the meat is marinated, right? Before sun yes. drying, what is it marinated with? Um, some herbs and spices, largely turmeric, and turmeric, as you know, has antiseptic uh, properties as well. Um, some chili powder, some pepper. So these um, recipes can. Sh- change according to whichever family or, or woman is doing this preservation but these tend to be the general general ingredients and the for the fish there's a slightly different spice paste as well as i say there's a herbal component to it and i don't know the herbs name in english right but it grows wild in the um, around the spaces in the village and they, and they add to it because again it has a medicinal quality so these foods are considered healthy as well it's not just tasty but it's healthy um, and you give them to pregnant women or people who have been ill for a long time it's supposed to help them uh, replenish nutrients that have been lost so this meat and fish how long can it last uh, unrefrigerated um it can last for about uh, a year and we sort of are very abstemious with using it precisely because we don't know when we are uh, when we get to go back and it's now much more frequent but still we're quite used to being abstemious with it and so we use a little bit and then um uh, it can keep up to a year because it's it's like uh, dried into like nuggets of pellets, right? So it's really, really, really tough. And you want to, uh, especially the goat meat. And if you want to use it, you have to soak it for uh, for some time. And then you have to smash it with a hammer so that it becomes soft enough to chew. And then you have to stew it in the curry. So it, it becomes soft enough to chew again. So it, yeah, it lasts for a very long time. Uh, and uh, does, by the way, does everyone uh, like the flavor of the sun-dried meat in your family? No, my father is born in Singapore, so he doesn't like it. Um, and um, my mother, who's born in India, she loves it. And my brother and I love it. And so she, my mother always says that we have country tastes and we are like her, right? So we like all the things that she likes. My sister and my father don't. They have very Singaporean tastes, according to her. 
and they don't like this sort of herbal, bitter, medicinal, spicy kind of uh, taste. Is there a is there a class or a caste aspirational dimension to this taste or 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 not? Whether you like it or you dislike it, is it seen backward? Is it seen traditional, too traditional, in a good way or a bad way? Yeah, there is a class component to it. It is very traditional because um, in some ways, I mean, meat is a luxury. It continues to be a luxury, especially in rural India. So you preserve it precisely because you don't want to waste any bit of it, right? You're so careful about storing it up or using as much of it as possible. And that's why all these preservation techniques are there. So when you can afford fresh meat, when you can afford, um, you know, frozen or refrigerated meat and you can eat as much meat as possible, it's no longer a luxury. Right? It's no longer something that you look forward to and you can have it every day. It becomes something that you are quite used to. So there is definitely a class component to it. So people might lose their taste unless you're familiar with the taste. Because And my brother and I are familiar with the taste precisely because my mother um, cooks it all the time and, and uh, we, we have learned to like it. So, But it is a taste that has to be acquired. It's not something that uh, everyone uh, has. Um, and there's also a caste dimension to it, precisely because, you know, upper caste, and as you know, um, higher caste tend to be vegetarian. And this is one of the reasons why we don't talk too much about meat um, and fish as part of foodways in Tamil Nadu, because a lot of these elite discourses are based on vegetarianism. Right. So there's definitely a, a caste and a class component to it. But um, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated intersection. As I said, meat is a luxury. <clears throat> You don't get it. And in the in the past, you used to get it only when you did a sacrifice or um, um, sacrificial worship. And then you had leftover meat and then you would preserve it for later on. Now people can buy meat, but yet it's not an everyday staple um, at all. And and so it has this component of luxury, but is also considered to be, a, you know, caste wise. It's not an elite food at all. So in so many funny ways, luxury and yet symbolically abject. That's very, yes. very specific to, I think, Indian context, yeah. uh, uh, which is useful for uh, other people to think through uh, conceptually. Yeah. Uh, in, in another section um, of this piece, you write um, how this food is associated with your mother's uh, memories of uh, girlhood in rural mm-hmm. Tamil Nadu. Mm-hmm. And you speak of uh, a different nature of interspecies relationship uh, in this context. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so my mother's uh, family are farmers, right? So they grow, mostly they grow rice um, and they keep a few animals, a few cows for milk and, and for transport and in the past and for fertilizer. So cow dung is what you use as fertilizer. Um, and a few goats and a few chickens. So these are the main sort of animals there and um, they raise goats to be sold and these goats are very especially today they are very very expensive and especially during worship times sacrificial worship times the, their prices shoot through the roof so women raise goats as a, a supplement to their income as well so it's a very lucrative uh, thing for for a lot of them um, and so animals you raise them you grow up with them you feed them but my mom was unusual in the fact in the thing that she got very uh, fond of one of particular small goat and and she you know treated it like a pet which in a farming family you usually don't and you're not supposed to invest too much emotion in your animals because eventually they're going to die and they're going to be killed to feed you um and so but she found this goat very very cute and she was very uh distraught when um it died because it on a very hot day, it drank uh, a, a pan of oil that was drying out in the sun. It, it thought it was water and it just drank 
uh, this oil and gulped it down before she could stop it. And so it died uh, with, you know, with the stomach ache and, and, and diarrhea and all that. And eventually um, it became, um, you know, uh, it was slaughtered and it was eaten. And although she had so much affection for it and she treated it like a, a pet and all that, she still remembers the taste of it. She says it was very soft. It was like cotton. It melted in your mouth. So this is very upsetting, perhaps, or even unusual for a lot of people. How can you eat a pet? But it was not meant to be a pet. And no animal on a farm is meant to be a pet, right? And you, you, yeah, you have a lot of affection for it. But eventually, you know that it's going to end up so being sold or killed, right? So there's a very practical, pragmatic uh, essence to it, as well as affection. So it's a sort of complicated uh, kinship between animals and, and people. Uh, that, that's, in fact, beautiful. Uh, these are, of course, like very uh, Mary Douglas, right? A classification yeah. has consequences. Uh, yeah. And uh, we see in the West and we see everywhere else in the world what is pet and, and what is uh, uh, food. Um, going back to your piece, um, uh, you, you wanted in this case, uh, the taste of the country. And mm-hmm. country both in the double sense of okay. the place you came from and countryside, uh, uh, the rurality of it. Uh, I'm also intrigued. Wh- what did your whatever relatives want from Singapore? How did they imagine it and what did they want? Uh, uh, you wanted sun-dried provisions. What did they want from Singapore? In the first place, it was very difficult to find something that they liked because... I mean, we would bring them these highly processed chocolates and jellies and, and sweets and things, and marshmallows and stuff. And they simply hated it. It was just uniformly sweet to them. It had no sort of complexity or nuance or anything. And so they like, you know, they would politely chew a bit of it. But, um, you know, they, they hated most of it. Um, and so it took a few tries to find out actually what did they like. And we found that they liked food that they could customize to their own taste. And their taste ran towards the tart and the spicy. So the foods that they liked included like canned sardines in tomato sauce, right? And this is a way to preserve fish. Um, and this was a very useful and, and, and a ubiquitous part of Singaporean and Malaysian um, uh, diets, right? You used to make sandwich filling, you used to make a curry, and you couldn't access fresh fish. You always had a can of sardines, which you can make a curry out of, right? And so um, my father taught my cousin how to make relishes out of fish um, and curries out of these canned sardines, and they would use it to accompany idlis, which are steamed rice cakes, right? And so rice cakes usually come with dal or sambar and ch- coconut uh pesto type uh, chutney but uh, this time they had it with sardine curry and they really really liked the tartness and the spiciness right and other things they would like would be like instant noodles so my relatives in India knew about instant noodles had regular access to instant noodles way before the 1990s and liberalization and when the rest of India got access to uh, instant noodles Um, they like dried anchovies a lot again because these uh, could be customized to their taste. They could make a curry out of it. They could make a relish out of it. And it would accompany dal or curd or yogurt. And it would add, a, similar to how the sun-dried provisions added a textural and taste counterpoint to our meals, these sort of canned sardines and dried anchovies did the same thing for them. So these we found over time, these are the things that they wanted and they ate. And so we sort of focused on these and we brought these as gifts rather than the sweets and the chocolates and stuff like that. And you write, there's a beautiful textural element to it. And you said they uh, they did not like the springy noodles, right? No. Uh, so there's a textural uh, distinction. Could you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah, so even like, I think having grown up in Singapore, we're very exposed to Chinese uh, uh, and uh, textural preferences, taste preferences as well. And as you know, the Chinese um, are much more erudite about texture than most other cultures, right? They appreciate springiness and they have a word for it. It's called QQ, right? Um, in Mandarin. And and they uh, they appreciate it as a, as a taste component of noodles. And like vegetables, especially in the Cantonese tradition, have to be crisp had to maintain their greenness while my relatives think of crisp vegetables stir-fried vegetables as like undercooked or even raw vegetables right they would cook it until it became very very soft right and so even these instant noodles they would cook it until it became very soft and we hated it because we had become used to this sort of springiness that um, had come out of how we ate noodles in Singapore right so not just taste preferences but textural preferences were quite different um, in that case the memories of the village home, uh, you say, is preserved in, I quote, uh, salt, uh, spice and sunshine. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the equivalent in your, in your soul, to put it uh, in French terroir terms, which is often associated with soil, technique and soul? Would mm-hmm. you say, in your imagination, it is the combination of salt, spice and sunshine? Yeah, I would actually. I think this is a specific taste of the village, at least for us and how our exposure to the uh, village is like. And I would add one further component to it, which would be the water, right? Water, um, right? Water, mm. water in Tamil Nadu has a taste. It's not like sort of chlorinated kind of water that we get in taps in Singapore. And the, for the first, when I first traveled to Tamil Nadu and had water straight from uh, 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 well and, and things like that, that's when I first realized that water has taste. It is not some sort of neutral component. And a lot of people um, can cite different tastes of water in different places. And they get sick if they drink the water from somewhere else. And they bring cans of water with them whenever they travel because they said that water doesn't agree with us. Right? So this notion of terroir with the addition of uh, liquid uh, water um, and the taste and, and the, the quality of light and, and uh, the salt and the time and all of that is a component. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. That's that's lovely. Uh, so maybe uh, uh, we are running out of time. So to close your thinking, um, anything you want to speak to that we have not addressed today? Uh, that's the first part of the question. And the second part is, uh, what's what's your next project or a related project to wh- what you have just written? Um, I think one of the reasons why I wrote this piece was because... Um, the diaspora of, as I said, the Tamil diaspora, the much older and more established diaspora of Tamils in Southeast Asia was not as prominent in the literature as other diasporas. And I wanted to talk about, speak to my personal experiences, uh, my family's experiences, and I wanted to explore some of it through the food, right? And I think Tamil food itself is um, not explored in the complexity that it could be. And especially Tamil diasporic food, there's a whole other uh, element to it that's not ex- as explored as it could be. And, and I also wanted to pay homage to my mother, right? And, and how she kept alive the memory of the village through the food, through the stories that she told us, through the um, experiences she would tell us. I mean, she would relate the months in Singapore, right? Uh, to the months and the climatic circles and the agricultural seasons in, in India. She said, it should be raining now. But I said, I'm like, mom, we are in Singapore. We're no longer in, in the village. But she always related it to the weather patterns kind of there. So she kept the village alive for us. And so I think we are unusual 
especially in Singapore, because most people do not have this close association with the village anymore. Um, and she kept it alive for us. And I think I would attribute me becoming an anthropologist precisely to this, the fact that she kept alive this place and this memory and taste sensations and even experiences with animals and people and all of that. And I found that fascinating. And that's why I went back to the village that she was from and where I was also born and left when I was a toddler to do fieldwork. So that's um, why it became important. My next project is a related one uh, in many ways. So there are two components to it. I'm working a lot more on um, meat. I, I feel that meat has become very political, especially given the incendiary politics in India today. And I feel a lot more should be written about it. I don't want vegetarianism and, and, and vegetables, which you know, I really appreciate and most of my diet is vegetarian anyway, but I don't want it to overwhelm all these other uh, experiences and tastes and norms that are out there as well. So a lot of it, um, I mean, I've just got a recent article come out on meat offerings to deities in Tamil Hinduism. Um, and, and this is related to my work on animal sacrifice as well. So that's the second uh, element to it. I'm working on um, other ways in, of worshipping rather than just offering flowers and fruits and vegetables and things like that. But um, animal sacrifice and the offering of animals and how that continues to be a feature in rural Tamil Hinduism, even though it might not be valued or it might not be um, uh, considered legitimate or orthodox or any of that in the uh, literature. And, um, and lastly, I'm, I'm, I'm also writing a lot more about uh, Tamil diaspora food, like from the, the same sort of article, but from the Singaporean angle. How did my grandmother who migrated to Singapore, how did she adapt Tamil food ways and Tamil life ways and Tamil rural Tamil tastes to the sort of plethora of ingredients and techniques and um, um, exposures that she was she had available living in a port city and a cosmopolitan city like Singapore. Excellent. That's kind of a uh, excellent note uh, to finish on, where your piece is uh, evocative. The fee, uh, the piece is richly descriptive, sharply analytical, and what you brought towards the end of this conversation, uh, a sharp critical insight into the discussion on food, uh, taste, and veneration uh, in the Indian context. So thank you, Indira, for joining us today. Uh, and listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. For more details, visit gastronomica.org and join us this summer season as we talk with authors from our newest issue, 22.2, and subscribe to our podcast feed to stay tuned uh, for new episodes. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.